There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny and with me is Dr Maria Taflaga, Senior Lecturer in Political Science at the School of Politics and International Relations. Hi Maria. Hello Mark. Hi well, everyone. Welcome back after a, a few weeks having to be in other places. Yes, no, it's great to be back in the studio. I'm very excited to to dig into our sausage. <laughs> That's an know. unfortunate uh, mental image. Um, now you've made it worse. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I don't think I'll reveal to you a sausage again. <laughs> That's right. Um, overnight, uh, of course, as we record this, uh, US President Joseph Biden bobbed up in Kiev for talks with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Pretty big moment this. The trip was immediately compared to JFK in West Berlin in 1961 and Ronald Reagan at the Brandenburg Gate in 1987. Both of those were uh, pretty direct presidential statements uh, by gesture and by words aimed ultimately at Moscow, as was this, arguably. To discuss this, uh, it's welcome back to Dr. Charles Miller, a defence and strategic policy expert, also at the School of Politics and International mm-hmm. Relations, and whose voice you've already heard. Yeah. Welcome back again, Charles. Thank you. Glad to be here. So it was a big moment, wasn't it? It was, yeah, absolutely. I was really quite surprised. I mean, it's a, quite a risky thing to do. You know, he's going to give at a point when there are air raid sirens going off. Mm. You know, so he's actually taking um, a, a fairly... Um, non-trivial personal risk in going there. And I think it is a really, really, I think it's really good that he did it. Um, and I think that it um, actually has a really important effect on um, the diplomacy around the war, um, which I'm happy to delve into mm. if you want me to, to yeah. talk about it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, do, please explain. Like, um, why why is it important that he show up? Well, the reason why really goes down to the kind of the, the logic of um, the logic of negotiation and the logic of bargaining, um, and essentially, many people in international relations view war um, as a form of bargaining, and they view um, diplomacy and war as being essentially um, things that are on um, a kind of a spectrum, if you will, mm, a continuum, a continuum. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And what Joe Biden is doing by going to um, Kiev is he's staking his own personal credibility and the credibility of the US government on the survival um, of Ukraine as an independent country and support for Ukraine, um, which means that this changes the bargaining situation, changes the negotiations, any potential negotiations um, about ending the war, for example, 
in very important ways because um, it now um, increases the costs that the United States would bear um, if um, Ukraine were to be overrun um, or um, perceived to be defeated, um, if you will, mm. which makes it more likely that Putin will conclude the United States will stick by um, Ukraine, um, which should in turn have the effect of making, um, of basically making um, Putin more likely, if you like, to make more concessions in order to end the war if the war were actually to end in some kind of negotiation. Yeah, so I suppose implicit in that is mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the, and we see this um, mm. mentioned by a number of people uh, right throughout the last year, and of yep. course that's the other point about this. This is, we're right on the eve of the anniversary, the first mm -hmm. anniversary of this invasion. Um, but implicit implicit in, in um, uh, the reversal of um, of atmospherics or the change of atmospherics mm. that comes about by, by Biden's visit uh, is this notion that um, that Putin has been kind of banking on mm. the West getting fatigue at some That's point. Right. That it all just dragging on for too long, yep. um, and 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 various donor governments sort of losing their patience or right. coming to the end of their perhaps their financial or or electoral capacity yep. to stay the distance. And what Biden has said, and you used the term, you know, um, uh, in in for the long haul, I think, yep. or whatever it was. I mean, that's pretty much what Biden said that's explicitly. Right. We will stay as long as it takes. Right. So you've got the the visit itself, which is a big striking visual gesture mm -hmm. and, as you say, a physical um, a commitment as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've got the words. And he, and he was quite mm – -hmm. I, I watched oh, yeah. it live uh, last night on oh, BBC. Really? and. Um, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was quite impressive. I mean, mm. Zelensky spoke in Ukrainian for you know a reasonably long period of time, and then and then Biden spoke. Mm. This was after they had sort of you know signed guest books mm. and and and, mm. and and these kinds of things, had other talks, uh, and then they fronted the media and they made these statements. And Biden talked about um, the the call that he'd had with Zelensky uh, on the, you know on the twenty fourth of February. Uh, Last year, uh, and the sort of what 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 he thought at that time, he said mm. you could you know Zelensky had told him that there were air raid sirens and bombs going off and so forth, and he said you know basically the world was and these were his words literally bracing for the fall of Kiev for the fall of Ukraine. Well, Ukraine mm. still stands, Kiev still stands, mm -hmm. democracy still stands, and mm. it was in the, yes. right in there, wasn't he? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean that's quite. I didn't actually have the um, have the chance to watch it, but I mean you know that's that's a pretty powerful statement. That's true, and what's important. Important again, I mean, is that Biden is not just saying these things, he's actually through his physical presence in Kiev demonstrating these things. Um, and that's very, very important because, you know, like I said, that that puts the credibility of Joe Biden and it puts the credibility of the United States on the line in a way that signals to Vladimir Putin that the United States, at the very least, as, at least as long as Joe Biden is president, um, is not going to back down in this, which obviously gives a real kind of boost to, you know, the Ukrainian position um, strategically. Um, so theoretically, he Putin would have to update his, his calculation. Mm, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, I forgot my second point, which is really irritating. But in, in <laughs> essence, um, actions speak louder than words. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah. So he's really sort of followed through. Right. Well, it's the same thing with Zelensky refusing to leave Kiev mm. last year, right? Mm. So, I mean, if he'd just said, you know. If I he'd don't need a ride, I need weapons. Yeah. Right, I need ammunition. You know, and the, the other very famous, you know, when he, when he does this little kind of, you know, selfie video with his cabinet yeah. where he's standing there and saying, your president is here, your defence yeah. minister's here, et cetera, et cetera. And we're not going anywhere, yeah. Right, we're not going anywhere, exactly. Now, if, he'd, if, if Zelensky had said all of the things that he said in the last few years from exile in Warsaw or Prague, that's not 
really going to have the same effect as yeah, it's a good as, point as what it's it? actually yeah. had yeah because because he's actually putting his physical his his life on the line i mean i'd heard that at some point last year the russians had made up to 14 assassination attempts on Zelensky. Yeah. So by staying in Kiev and keeping himself um, in harm's way, he is essentially signaling um, his his resolve um, to to win the war to the Ukrainian people and to the Russians. Yeah, and well. I mean, it's like you're yeah, right. Like it's a it's a commitment to a vision of Ukraine that is uh, you know independent or outside mm. of the shadow of mm. of Russia. And if you actually look at the sort of history of the development of Ukrainian politics as a state, it's only thirty years old, right? Mm. Like. Um, um, that is actually an incredibly powerful sort of symbol and the sort of cynicism around political elites in Ukraine and, and their commitment mm. to democracy and their commitment to, um, you know, an alternative um, pathway, like, you know, a Polish pathway, mm, yeah. which, you know, is not exactly 100% amazing, but is definitely a different kind mm. of life to what is available mm. and on offer from Moscow, right. which we can see in Belarusia, for example. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, um, it is a really good example of why the politics of symbolism really kind of um, matters. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose it is like a, you know, you've kind of got your hardware and you've got your sort of soft, soft mm -hmm. power kinds of mm -hmm. dimensions. And I suppose what I kind of want to want to know is, you know, how important do you think Biden's visit at this time is in the general kind of context of, like the you know this difficult winter in Europe, mm -hmm. the, the energy crisis and the, and the inflation kind of mm -hmm. crisis. Like, mm -hmm. do you think it's important beyond the borders of Ukraine as well? What's your mm -hmm. take? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it is important in all these things. So, I mean, first of all, with the, with the winter, I mean, it turned out to be an unexpectedly mild winter in Europe, which was which was fantastic. And um, the Germans did a great job of adapting to the cutoff of um, Russian energy supplies. Um, so that actually passed off really without causing as many problems um, as, as many had that thought. That was the big fear going in. That was the it? big yeah. fear going in, exactly. That passed off um, without anything like as many problems as many um, people feared. Um, I think that it's important now, however, because if we cast our minds back to when, I think it was last on, the Kharkiv um, offensive that the Ukrainians undertook, so what happened was that the Ukrainians undertook this offensive, they scored a massive victory against the Russians. And then I think a lot of people in the West just assumed that that was the war pretty much won, right? So the Ukrainians would now continue smashing through the Russian positions. Um, they would expel the Russians from all parts of, you know, 2013 Ukraine. And, um, you know, that would be it. The good guys are the one we could all go home. Um, but the problem is, of course, that, you know, the Kharkiv offensive, I mean, um, it was for relatively limited stakes. They, it was a great uh, military achievement, um, but it didn't end the war. And so um, a lot of Westerners, I think, perhaps took from this, well, hmm, you know, this is, this is lasting longer than we thought. Is it really going to go as well as we thought it was going to be? So, I mean, support for, for a war effort sort of broadly construed is partly a function of the cost, but also partly a function of the prospects for success. Mm. And I think that over the course of the winter, when we didn't see a continuation of these offensives um, by the Ukrainians um, winning further ground, when we saw the Russians training the, the, the troops that they had mobilised, stabilising the front line and then mounting some offensives of their own, um, I think that that may have actually shifted in a negative direction some of the beliefs um, which many people um, in the West had about what was going to happen in the war. So instead of it being, you know, like a very decisive Ukrainian victory, as it seemed after Kharkiv, now 
um, it looks um, more like a stalemate. And then, of course, you get sort of various voices saying, well, you know, if it's going to be a stalemate, let's end it. Let's give Russia some of what, what it wants and so on. And, you know, Russia hearing this, you know, thinks, well, you know, maybe our strategy is going to work. Yeah, yeah, so what, right. right, exactly. So what Biden You're going to be really careful doing, here, don't you? Because you're always yeah, exactly. talking to, when you're talking publicly, you're always talking to the enemy as well. That's and, correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe there's people from the Russian embassy listening to what we're saying right now. Wouldn't be wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's public domain. So, um, you know, maybe check on the viewing figures. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Slavia, Ukraine, if, uh, if they are listening. Um, um, but I mean, yeah, you know, so, so so what Biden is basically doing is saying, you know, on my watch at the very least, um, we are going to keep going and we're going to keep providing, um, you know, Ukraine with weaponry. We're not going to allow Ukraine to fall. So, um, yeah, I think it is important from that point of view because I think it's stiffening, I think, the resolve of, you know, certain people both in the United States and in other Western countries who might have thought that, you know, perhaps the war is, um, you know, going to grind on and maybe we should just kind of cut our losses and give Russia some kind of a deal that will allow them to claim victory, basically. Yeah, well, this is that sort of argument that all wars end in you know, to talk, to go back yeah. to your point about the continuum, all where mm. wars end in negotiation in politics of something. There's, you know, politics eventually comes back in as the mm. way in which wars tend to end, right? Mm. Uh, and um, and so you see this kind of mentioned quite mm. a lot in mm. reportage around the place, uh, mm. perhaps less so in the last fortnight than yeah. than, than than say a month before that. Mm -hmm. um, again, which also goes to your point about the kind of right. sense of stalemate. Yes. Um, and. Uh, the, the, you know, obviously the Russians are going to take some comfort from that because mm -hmm. they're going to think, well, the, you know, there's a sort of a consensus building, yeah. uh, a kind of an acceptance right. that mm -hmm. um, that perhaps we can um, we can reach some sort of negotiated agreement. But of course, to get to that negotiated uh, position, to be able to sit at that table and have any sort of leverage, mm -hmm. you need to be in a very strong position. And yeah, both exactly. sides feel that, don't they? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Both sides still feel that they have a path to victory on the battlefield. And when you have that, you can't really have negotiations. You know, any kind of negotiations are only going to begin. It's a real sweet spot though, isn't it? It is a real sweet spot, got, yeah, exactly. You, you could have either sort of stalemate yeah. or you could have the sense that we can actually win this. Mm -hmm. And what you're looking for if you're mm. interested in that negotiated outcome, yeah. is something that mm. probably sits between those two positions. That's true. I mean, look, I, I think it's it's important to stress that not all wars end in negotiations. Um, a substantial proportion of wars end in negotiations. Um, some wars end with a complete victory of yes. one side or the other. Yes. I mean, World War II did, very famously. Yes. Um, some wars end in um, a sort of a tacit, um, truce, if you like, there's no formal negotiation, no formal yeah. peace treaty. So yeah. there's never been a formal peace treaty in Korea, for example, yeah. which is, I think, a very... <laughs> Technically don't end. Yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, so, I mean, they, they don't all. No, that's um, a fair point. But, I mean, you know, a substantial proportion of them do, that's true. Well, let's face it, um, a, a, a end to this conflict that doesn't end in a negotiation isn't desirable. You know, we're, we're talking about a frozen conflict mm, on one yeah. hand or a total capitulation of one state mm. in in it, of, of these two antagonists. Like, neither of those are, are a great outcome, right? Well, I don't know. Here's, here's where I would actually disagree because um, – so if you listen to Yulia Yoffa, have you heard of Yulia Yoffa? 
no, no. Okay, so she's a Russian-American journalist, um, born and raised in um, in Russia, immigrated to the United States relatively young, um, works for a variety of different publications, New Yorker, she has her own media now. Um, she very frequently appears on American television talking about um, Putin in Russia. And the point that she makes is that if there's a negotiated settlement, then... Um, Russia will simply see this as being a sort of a pause where they can get there, a placeholder where they can catch their breath and go again when things are more, um, uh, let's say, propitious for them in the future, right? So, I mean, the Minsk Agreement um, after the invasion of the Donbass and um, Crimea, um, for instance, um, that effectively w- was that. So, you know, right. you had this kind of negotiations to end um, the war then, um, which the Russians basically took as a placeholder to wait and have another go at Ukraine um, in a few years' time. Um, so her argument is that if you really want to see a genuinely stable, lasting peace, between Russia and Ukraine, what you actually have to have is a pretty decisive defeat of Russia because that's the only way to get them to leave Ukraine alone. I know. I, I accept your argument, mm. but I guess I don't really see a situation in which you do see mm. the kind of total capitulation that we saw, for example, in, in mm. Germany mm. or Japan in 1945 mm. in the case of of, of um, the Russian Federation. Like, it's just so enormous, mm. like, as mm. a landmass, mm. You know, with as a population, like I just, I don't really see without a full scale war with NATO, like how that actually happens. Yeah, I I see what you mean. Sorry, um, so I should have been a little bit, perhaps a little bit more precise in that. And you know, I I attributed this argument to Yulia Yoffa, but I, I agree with it myself so you know it should take yeah yeah i can i can sense i can see why i'm you know it's true right like as the regime currently is Mm -hmm. there's there's really no reason for them to sort of change the pattern of behavior that's been established for well since 99 can can, can i can i just jump in here i mean it seems to me that if we if we think Mm -hmm. about Say the, mm. the the big one, the Second yeah. World War. Yeah, right. obviously it didn't end in negotiation; it ended in total yeah. victory, right? But it ends in total victory on the enemy's territory. Yeah, right? okay. So, uh, we, we're not talking about Ukraine right. invading Russia. No, no, no. So, Absolutely. So this is what. Yeah. So this is what I should really clarify, um, which is basically. Um, a, a decisive victory for Ukraine would essentially be one in which um, the Russian army is dealt a very, very serious defeat on Ukrainian soil. Um, large numbers of casualties or hopefully more likely prisoners of war um, who surrender. Something essentially on this, something very much like the Kharkiv offensive, yeah. but on a much larger scale. And, and, which and, pushes and, and presumably bolstered by Putin being so discredited that he is removed perhaps, by his own people. Uh, perhaps, I mean, because I'm, if he's I'm still not, there and he's not discredited, then there's a political, mm, you know, there's a pent-up political kind of pressure to there go is, again. There is, but there's a danger. I mean, um, I don't think that we can really that we can really count on Putin being removed. It would be great if it, would, if it were to happen. Um, I would be very happy if it were to happen. Well, I reckon I a, think, a, a, mm, a comprehensive defeat of the kind we're right. talking about might go some way towards it increasing might. that. But let me, um, so, so the example I think about is the Soviet-Polish war in the early 1920s. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not like a, exactly a, when it comes to wars, I don't know if you can use the term household name, but it's not one that's very well known by many people outside of Poland, really. Um, but what happened there was you had the Soviet Union invading Poland 
Um, and then the, I've actually very similar in many ways, you know, most people believed that the Poles were going to be defeated and, you know, destroyed quite quickly. And the Poles actually um, recovered and inflicted a very serious, severe defeat on the Red Army outside of Warsaw and basically pushed the Soviets yeah. out of um, out of Polish territory to the point where they didn't try again until 1939 when they had the Germans um, on their side. So I'm thinking something more along the lines of that. So basically mm. then you have this large-scale defeat of Putin's army. Um, you've got the Russians pushed back to their 2013 borders. And then what you have is um, the Russian army being so degraded in terms of its losses, not just of um, men, but also of material, um, also prisoners and so on, experienced cadres, officers, NCOs, that it would be very, very difficult of them for them to try anything again for many, many years. If that means that Putin's gone, great. If it doesn't, however, at least if he's suffered those kind of losses that make it hard for him to try again, then for me, that's a good outcome. And I would defend that point. Let's take a quick break there and be back in just a moment. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. You're with Democracy Sausage, of course, but of course you already know that. Uh, it comes to you from the Australian National University each week. We're talking with Dr. Charles Miller. With me is Dr. Maria Taflaga as well. Um, now, where were we, Maria? You wanted to uh, continue on a point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that, that makes a lot more sense to me as a, as a sense of um, like what a, a resounding victory would look like because mm. that's essentially Ukraine asserting its, you know, dominance and control of its mm. borders, its sovereignty mm. and its mm. monopoly on violence within <laughs> yes, its yes, borders, exactly, right, yep. to sort of talk about exactly. it in brass tax terms. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that, that thanks, thanks for clarifying that. Oh, um, the, 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 one of the limits of the analogy, though, mm -hmm. is that this is a, uh, a war that is being fought by Ukraine for Ukrainian territory, mm -hmm. strongly backed by a host of other allies, by mm -hmm. NATO, uh, by Australia, by, mm -hmm. by other countries. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's a, that's a really interesting dynamic as well because, and this goes back to what, where we started this discussion, mm -hmm. um, Joe Biden's visit to Kiev and what that says We've discussed this before. Everyone knows this sort of basic limitation of this, which is that there's a whole lot of people with very strong interests in or countries mm. with very strong interests in this war, but they're not fighting it themselves. Yeah. The Ukrainians are fighting right. it, but they're doing so with a lot of yeah. material, with a lot of um, uh, assistance and moral support from from the, mm -hmm. the democratic world in particular. 
it's interesting, I think, that Biden's presence mm-hmm. at that time, at this time, right on the sort of anniversary of the war, really does, I mean, yes, there aren't American troops on the ground, mm. but there are many American armaments on the ground, a lot mm-hmm. of American technology, mm-hmm. a lot of American funds, mm. and now the president himself, mm. his boots have been on the ground. Yeah, right. And I'm interested in your thoughts about whether that, um, if we look at it, like looking at the whole um, circumference of mm. his of his options here, mm-hmm. he's really closed off any possibility of America mm. being able to step away from this, hasn't he? Um, I, well, I don't think he. I don't think he has, in one sense, that I don't think he's really by doing this committed America to saying that Ukraine has to be able to do what I've outlined. So basically, pushing Russia back to its twenty thirteen borders. I don't think he's committed to that. Mm. What he has committed to is to ensuring that Ukraine um, remains an independent state um, that is free from Russian domination. Um, that's what he's committed to. But not um, necessarily, but not necessarily to the 2013, to the, the pre-Crimean yes, borders. Yes, exactly, yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, so I think he has committed the United States up to a point at least, um, but not necessarily going all the way. Do you think it changes – what do you think, Ray? Do you think this sort of changes the, 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 the overall dynamics here? You know, I mean – Putin's always been saying that you know he's essentially fighting the West anyway. That you know that it's a it's a sort of a moot point whether whether Western troops are on the ground, NATO troops are on the ground. He sees this as a kind of a war with NATO in some mm-hmm. ways, and and Putin's kind of confi- uh, sorry, um, Biden's kind of confirmed that uh, you know by by being there and saying we're with you all the way. You know, there's no ambiguity about it, is there? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I think like if you just think about mm. where we were. Um, like almost a year ago mm. to the day, um, this is an enormous distance that the US president has travelled, yeah, right? Yeah, and I guess I, I am actually kind of interested in what you think, Charlie, about mm. like the implications for NATO because mm. that was such an important part about, you know, why they couldn't offer mm. um, an aerial defence system, yeah. the, the the main kind of moral argument the Russians made for, right. for this war in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 that, that the the expansion of, yeah. of mm-hmm. NATO. Mm. Um, you know, onto our, mm-hmm. you know, in our backyard. Mm, right. um, so yeah, like you know, is this visit tied or to this conflict? Uh, you know, that sorry to drawing in NATO. I'm sure Putin will argue that it mm-hmm. is, but mm. like in in reality, is it? Does it make you mean to say? Does it make it more likely that Ukraine will join NATO? Well, no. I mean, like yeah, I suppose. But I mm-hmm. guess what I'm really asking, inarticulately, is. Is Biden's visit like mm-hmm. um, the you know the, an important stepping stone to this becoming a full on Russia versus NATO kind of war, or or is that just histrionics? Um, no, I, I don't think it's a stepping stone to becoming a full on Russia versus um, NATO war. Um, no, I mean first of all. A number of Western leaders, a number of NATO leaders have already been to Kiev. So Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, Olaf Scholz. Um, also, I mean, there's been a number of um, senior members of the US government, not necessarily Biden himself. So Secretary of Defense, um, Chairman of the um, uh, House, um, Senate Majority Leaders and so on. Um, so, I mean, I don't think it's, it necessarily commits the United States to putting boots on the ground or even no, no. playing you know, aircraft over the skies of, um, of Ukraine. Um, but I think it does um, commit the United States to doing um, whatever it can short of that to maintain Ukrainian independence. Yeah, but it's a fascinating 
to mention this because mm. the politics of this leading up to the war was mm. all about that argument, as yeah. Murray was making the point, all about that argument of, of mm. encroachment, that, uh, that that NATO was flirting with the idea, mm. leading, you know, sort of uh, gesturing to Ukraine, mm. that Ukraine might be granted membership of NATO. And, and Putin used that domestically, he that did. this is NATO encroaching right up to a Russian border, that, you know, that whole sphere of influence well, thing that, that had dominated the Cold War mm. and... and um, you know, was being broached, mm. breached, I should say, um, with with NATO f- flirting with the idea of Ukraine mm. being a member of NATO, and really, that could be the result of this. We've seen it could be yeah. Finland and Sweden, for yeah, example, joining that. right. Exactly. I mean, Sweden. We'll we'll see, right? I mean, you know, we've got this potential for a Turkish veto over Swedish membership, which yes. could kind of stall that. Um, but I mean, we have to remember that the idea of Ukrainian membership of NATO had been dead for a long time prior to um, prior to the war. So that makes it quite difficult for me to buy the idea that that's what actually caused it. Now, perhaps I'm, I'm not a, saying it oh, caused sure. it, but it was sure. it, it was domi- it was used domestically. It didn't, it it didn't, mat- didn't need to be actually true. Right. Bush had ta- spoken about it in yep. 2008, George W. Bush. Yeah, he had. Yeah, absolutely. He had spoken about it. But I mean, the idea, like Angela Merkel pretty much killed off the idea um, after that. And it had never really kind of, you know, been a serious proposition after um, after that point um, until now. Um, but there is, I think, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made to say that um, the West should have handled Russia better in the 1990s during the Boris Yeltsin era. So, you know, maybe, now bearing in mind, again, you know, the Baltic countries, which were former members of the Soviet Union, didn't join until um, the 2000s when Putin was already in power. But nonetheless, you know, the moves to um, to enlarge NATO and um, to bring in Poland, Hungary and so on and so forth, you know, perhaps in hindsight, it might have been better to wait until Russian democracy had been consolidated before doing those kind of things. Um, And I think that there is, you know, that is a reasonable argument. Um, In the same way, perhaps, you know, that um, you might want to think that some of the things that the Allies did um, with respect to Germany in the 1920s before um, Hitler came to power could have been much more conciliatory towards the Germans, right? So maybe the, the thing about appeasement is that it wasn't wrong in principle. It was wrong... Um, as a policy directed towards Adolf Hitler. But if it had been directed towards the Weimar Republic, it might actually have been a lot more successful. So similarly, right, if um, the West had been more conciliatory towards Russia's kind of foreign policy and security sensitivities in the 1990s when Russia was... um, albeit in an abortive way, transitioning towards democracy. And perhaps that would have been a, a better idea than what it ultimately did. But once Putin got in power... I don't think I don't mm. think that appeasement would have worked. Which was actually a long time ago. I it was very long. Yeah, it was 1999, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that's right. You, what you actually your your analogy to to the post World War One settlement really actually mm. underscores for me like mm. the economic dimension mm. here, right? Like mm. perhaps shock therapy for yes, Ru- the right. Russian economy in right. the 1990s, right. you know, was not exactly the best strategy. And for, like you know, for listeners who who have no idea what it was like um, at the fall of the Soviet Union, like. Basically, for you know, like nine or ten months, no wages were paid right. in the Soviet Union. Like people went to work every day because there was nothing else to do, but no one was actually getting paid. That you know, um, uh, the, if you go to Russia now, you'll sort of see that all the apartment blocks have mm. like heavy-duty steel doors mm-hmm. on them, which you know, and that is because. Uh, 
you know, the place was a wild west and people would just take drills or even just screwdrivers, mm. take the door off yeah. your house and right. just steal everything. <laughs> so, so I mean, you can kind of actually sort of see why um, there is a sort of sort of siege mentality mm. um, in, in, in Russian politics and, and why this war, which is going so badly, is so disturbing, right, because it invokes memories of the Great Patriotic War, which in Russia runs from mm. 1941 to 1945, not mm. 1939, right? Yep, right? Yep. And every year there is a big blockbuster about mm. glorifying mm. that war in the way that every year there is a show in the UK about the Blitz. Or the Battle of Britain. And the the Battle of Britain, right? So, you know, every all these countries are are sort of reinforcing Mm. these are the greatest days of our nation kind of narratives. Um, And so, you know, like it doesn't really matter in, in like to go back to the NATO point, like it, it often doesn't even matter if these things are true or not. People people believe they are true. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of affects like, you know, I guess what is what is possible to argue. And I'm just rambling now. I'm going to stop. So no. <laughs> well, I was going to make a point that we should uh, commemorate the great toilet paper shortage of uh, 2020 as oh well. Oh, my I mean, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, was, that, was, that was brutal. I'm, still, I'm still shell-shocked <laughs> from that. I, I still buy like about, you know, like five value packs every time I go to the shops <laughs> just in case. I think our generation always will. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's our finest hour. <laughs> yes, I know, exactly. <laughs> go back to your point about, um, about you know, all of those ex-Eastern Bloc states yeah. and their in- inclusion in NATO. It's a really interesting right. one because it does, when you when you look at what that, that induction in, I think, mm-hmm. in 2008 um, mm-hmm. of of all of those states, you know, you're talking about Estonia, Bulgaria, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, all those, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, a yeah. whole range of those countries. Right. It, it does read like a list of the buffer states of the former yeah. Soviet Union and that was the way it was seen. Right? Yeah. Uh, and... Ukraine, you know, mm-hmm. bordering on on Russia. Well, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the word the literally means on the edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. yeah. 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 Uh, and that's the way it's been used. And you know, there's an argument that it, it's, mm. as, as you know, in international relations about you know understanding balance, it into yeah. balance and understanding how mm. things are seen mm-hmm. as, as as not just how you see them, but how mm-hmm. the other side sees them, how mm-hmm. they are perceived, and um, and what narratives you are you you enliven in right. that process. And clearly, Putin's been very effective at mm-hmm. running this argument that mm-hmm. that essentially, you know, there, there's a containment strategy of. Of mm-hmm. of the old the former Soviet Union, mm-hmm. uh, just like China runs that narrative about right. um, you know the Quad, for example, that it's, yeah, a, it's a exactly. containment strategy. Exactly. Well, I think there's a, and this is where I would probably start to diverge a little bit from a lot of my kind of um, fellow hawks on this war um, in terms of um, what the sort of long term strategy would be. Let Let's imagine uh, in the situation where. Um, Russia um, transitions back to being a more democratic country, say Putin's got rid of, he ends up up against a wall like Nikolai Ceausescu or some such. And, you know, say Alexei Navalny is swept into power and, you know, (laughs) reinstalls Russia's democracy and so on. Um, I think under those conditions, I mean, the Ukrainians, quite understandably, and many of the other Eastern Europeans would still want to have NATO really close. They would still fear Russia. They wouldn't. That wouldn't be the end of it for them. Mm. Um, whereas I actually think then in that situation, the priority for the West would actually be to solidify um, democracy in Russia, because I think in the long run, that would be the best guarantor of the security and safety of the Ukraines and the Polands and the Bulgarias and so on. And by being, um, you know, more kind of um, 
I suppose, taking a more short-term view of things and saying, okay, well, we don't, you know, it, again, I'm talking hypothetically, mm -hmm. but by saying, you know, well, we don't know if this is going to last, you know, like they could have another Putin-like dictator come back in a few years' time. So let's, you know, treat continue to treat Russia with suspicion and mistrust. Um, I think that's the point where I think that the interests maybe or the, the, the behaviours of, you know, Western countries um, like the United States um, or Britain and so forth um, towards Russia um, and those of the Eastern European countries, including Ukraine, that have a hawkish attitude towards Russia. That's where it might begin to diverge. But right now, I think that our interests um, and theirs um, are pretty closely aligned. Yeah. Let's uh, shift from the kind of, the, mm -hmm. this kind of loftier, um, Absolutely. Uh, the sort of global politics of it all, the strategic policy, uh, to to the actual battlefields, right? So we've had some pretty in interesting developments yep. in recent times. Mm -hmm. uh, Zelensky himself has really stepped up uh, the, the the sort of calls for the requests, the demands yep. for extra yep. support. And there's there's a new urgency in his messaging, and I think it's a an entirely valid urgency where he is saying to, um, to NATO leaders, to Western supporters, um, Delays themselves are our enemy yes, here. We right. can't afford, you know, the, the, the eking this out, you yeah. know, bit dribble, yeah. dribs and drabs of of, of uh, support here of ammunition and so forth. Yeah. Understand, you know, w your own limitations and all that. But if we're going to survive this and prevail, mm -hmm. we need it now. Yes. Uh, and he 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 recently has uh, secured all those tanks, but he's got uh, 31 Abrams tanks coming mm -hmm. from the US, I think 14 of the um, Leopard 2 yep. coming, that Germany took mm -hmm. some time to agree to uh, supply and, and to allow some of those other yeah. countries I mentioned before that have Poland, been supplied, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. Estonia, those sort of countries mm -hmm. to provide uh, Leopard 2 tanks and the, and the Brits yep. are supply, supplying mm -hmm. Challenger tanks as yep. well. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, Interested in hearing your thoughts about that and also about the next level, which of course is this request for fighter aircraft. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, like I say, I I personally, um, I don't, you know, go out on a limb here and say that I'm in favour of really giving Ukraine what it is asking for. Um, I don't think that we should um, really observe too many limits here because I think that um, we can't, first of all, guarantee what's going to happen on the battlefield um, given a particular level of support. You cannot fine-tune war to that degree. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like we can say, well, you know, we'll give them tanks um, but not fighter aircraft and so therefore this will guarantee that they'll advance X kilometres. That That's not how it works. Mm. I mean, one of the things that um, does worry me a little bit is that we don't necessarily know um, what the kind of losses are that the Ukrainians have sustained um, and the danger that they may be in of um, basically being ground down via attrition. Um, so I think that we should give them um, what they are looking for to not guarantee but try and reduce as much as possible the risk of a really, really bad outcome, like the Ukrainian army um, being ground down almost to the point of collapse. I think we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. And also to give Ukraine the best chance possible of bringing about the end state that I was talking about earlier of basically um, defeating the Russians decisively and expelling them from all of Ukraine, not just the bits that they've taken. Because you've, got the, you've, got, the, you've got the effect yeah. of those weapons, but you've also got the effect of the commitment. Yes, you know? there's the effect no. of the commitment. Yeah, exactly. And the, you know, the, the, the message that it sends. But I think the weapons in and of themselves are pretty damn important. Yeah. Because the Russians have more men than the Ukrainians do. Um, both sides probably now are staffed in the majority by people who were not 
professional soldiers prior to the start of the war. So um, I think that the, the capabilities of both of the armies will have gone down to some degree. Um, so I don't think that the, you, you know, we, we can imagine that the Ukrainians are these kind of super soldiers that we made them out to be at the end of the war, at the end of, sorry, the end of last year after the Kharkiv offensive. Um, so I think we should give them what they're asking for um, and the hope being basically that we will end up with this maximally good situation of Russia being expelled um, and reduce to as much as possible the really bad situation of Ukraine being ground down. Do you think Australia should do more? I mean, yeah, if we can. I don't think ultimately that the, the you, Australia can really make that much of a difference in this kind of situation. I mean, I'm sorry to say, but you know, we're not really that big or powerful a country. So what the United States or Germany or France or Britain um, does is much more important than what we do. But insofar as we've got things that we can send to the Ukrainians, I think we should. Well, Charles, it's been yeah. terrific talking to you again uh, as we approach this uh, fateful anniversary, this mm -hmm. unfortunate anniversary of this appalling war. Um, so thanks again for checking in with us. I, I, I hope we uh, can talk to you again yeah. soon and hopefully we'll be talking about an ongoing yes. trajectory of improvement. But we are on the edge, of course, or we, you know, we're coming to the end mm. of February, which means we're coming to the end of mm. the Ukrainian or Northern Hemisphere winter. winter yeah. uh, and there's, there's much trepidation about, what yeah. what happens from here? We know the Russians are, yes. are are likely to launch some some pretty big offensives. They're using Iranian drones and all kinds of things. Mm. I noticed that the Israelis are providing or talking about providing their David Sling, mm. David's Sling, um, sort of drone and missile defense mm -hmm. systems uh, in Ukraine uh, for for Ukraine. Uh, so yeah, there's um, there there are many dynamics here, and this this could you know, get uglier before it gets better. It could indeed. I mean, one thing I would say, though, on, on, with regards to the Russian offensive, uh, Michael Friedman, who, again, like for me, is the best person to listen to um, if you want to, you know, really understand what's going on in um, the Ukraine war. So the War on the Rocks podcast is what you would listen to for right. that one. Um, he says that basically the offensive that is going on just now is is the the offensive the bigger there, there's not some other bigger one that's coming along later um that's mm. quite a big statement to make but yeah. i mean he does know what he's talking about so i would really um you know i, I would i would tend to lend a lot of credence to that assessment that he's let's made. hope he's right yeah thank you maria thank you thank you thank you, thank you, thank you very much yeah thank you maria thank you mark thanks for having me on uh always a pleasure that's democracy sausage for this week as you know it comes to you from the australian national university and we'll be back next week and i think we'll be talking about the big lie with a very eminent uh, Should I believe scientist. you, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm ching. I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye for now. <laughs>